0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much uh, for your amazing love, and we ask now, God, that through the teaching and the reading of your word, once again, our lives would be found honorable to you. God, Holy Spirit, come and use me, use the words of these songs, the prayers of your people, and fill this place in a way that only you can, God. We humbly submit ourselves to you and bring ourselves before your throne and declare you as our king. May you forever be exalted in jesus name amen. amen and amen thank you church you may be seated love having the opportunity to uh, celebrate just the love that we have in christ and, and the lord that he is of our lives i pray that through the course of our time together in worship this morning that would be a constant refrain that each and every one of us would experience feel and be able to leave here today knowing that intimately and, and very thoughtfully and intentionally. Uh, we've got a lot to cover today, and so I'm going to get right to it. I, I want to begin, uh, even though he's not here, by offering a word of thanks to Dallas Harvey, who filled in in my absence last week. For those of you that were here with us, he did a phenomenal job of continuing our journey through the book of Romans, uh, one that we are nearing the end, church. It's like we're making the last curve here, and we can kind of see that straight away. Believe it or not, we're going to be able to finish this book by the end of of this summer uh, schedule here. And so I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation today. Dallas did a great job of really building off of what was established in chapter 14. If you were with us several weeks ago when we went through chapter 14, Paul started bringing in this language of the strong and the weak faith. Right, the idea being that there were disputable matters that were causing conflict and issues within the church, disagreements within the church, and the way that Paul uh, categorized it and understood it was that for some of them who had a stronger faith, they had a greater grasp and understanding of the liberty that they had in Christ, the freedom that they had in Christ, and that wasn't always reconciling with those who had a weaker faith who still felt a somewhat beholden to some of these ancient ritual practices that were common within Ju- the Judaic belief system. And so it was creating conflict. And so the main message of chapter 14 was when you encounter these things, these disputable matters, you got to be able to find a way to build each other up. That that's a huge part of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ and something that we have talked about as we walk through that chapter, is how difficult that can be in today's context as well, because there are these disputable matters that create tremendous amounts of tension within the church, and unfortunately, we use those moments to tear each other down rather than build each other up. And so chapter 14 is that great admonition to say, build each other up. And so then you get to chapter 15, and the main thrust of what Dallas walked us through last week is that Jesus is the primary example of how you do this. You go back through the first part of chapter 15 and he says, Christ did nothing to please himself. Uh, He encourages the church there that they should have the same attitude in mind as Christ Jesus and that we should accept one another just as Christ accepted us. And so you have three different points in the first part of chapter 15 where Christ is held up as the primary example of how you manage these sorts of relationships and build build one another up within the church. And so that's what we've been able to talk through. And now you get to a noticeable shift in chapter 15. Uh, What what is essentially happening when we pick it up in verse 14 today is Paul now changes kind of tone. He changes uh, his whole discussion and his focus to begin to prepare for these concluding remarks. And in many ways, here in this part of chapter 15, he revisits some of the earliest ideas and themes that he introduced all the way back In chapter 1 and so in order for us to to have a good understanding of how those things connect we're actually going to start by looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 8 through 15 I'm gonna read it to you we'll have it up on the screens and you'll see how many of these ideas that he presents in this introduction are brought up again here in the later part of chapter 15 so follow along with me in chapter 1 starting in verse 8 Paul says first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God whom I serve in my spirit and preaching the gospel of his son is my witness. How constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. What you're about to see as we get to chapter 15 and he's about to reiterate it here in chapter one is that one of the main reasons Paul is writing the letter to the church in Romans is because he wants to come visit them. Right? This, is, this is like a, a precursor to say, hey, I'm on my way. I'm, I'm preparing a visit. Look at how he continues that. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Right? That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. For I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. This is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So essentially what Paul says here in the introduction, I want to come visit you. I've tried many times. I've been prevented from doing so until now. And we're about to see what had caused that delay here in chapter 15. Uh, And so I want to do this, but I'm encouraged encouraged by what I hear about you across the world. I'm encouraged by what's happening uh, within uh, your church. And so I hope that when I come, we can mutually encourage one another because I'm obligated to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks. And I am eager to preach this gospel to those of you who are in Rome. And so it's almost as if when he gets to that statement in chapter one, verse 15, where he references, I'm eager to preach the gospel, that he just decides, I'm gonna go ahead and do it. And for essentially the next 15 chapters, 1, 16 through 15, 13, Paul explains the gospel, right? We get that thematic verse in verse 16 and 17 where he begins to introduce this idea that righteousness comes through faith. And he unpacks that extensively and begins to walk through all of these different things Related to the gospel. And now, when he gets to chapter 15, he gets to this statement where he kind of continues to work towards how you're going to build each other up. And Christ is the example. And at the very middle part of chapter 15, he references uh, this this declaration to the God of hope. right? That he would fill us with all hope. That he would allow us to be filled with joy and peace through the overflowing of the power of the Holy Spirit. And that kind of serves as a bookend or, or an end uh, section of this long exploration of this gospel presentation. So it's almost like chapter 1, 16 through 15, 13 is this giant parenthetical statement where Paul's like, here's the gospel. And so now he's returning to some of these earlier themes. Now he's returning to explain exactly what his purpose was to do. And so when you get to this transition and this shift and you have this statement about the God of hope filling us with all joy and peace and the overflow of hope, what that is about to do is to show us exactly how that hope has shaped Paul's life. And, and I wanna make that connection before we read it in chapter 15 today because uh, what we've been talking about all year, right? Our theme for the year is what does it mean to live courageously, right? How do we have the courageous life? And one of the things that we have to constantly go back to is to remember that the courageous life is anchored and tethered to hope. But we sometimes, I would say, have a shallow understanding of hope, right? And, and, and we don't always really grasp it to the extent that we should, especially not to the extent that we see laid out for us here in the scriptures. See, a lot of times for us, we have hopes for something, but we do nothing about it. And because we don't really do anything about it, it really is just wishful thinking. But when a hope is based in reality, when it's based in confidence, well, well it creates motivation, it creates drive, it creates ambition, it creates work, and all these other different sorts of responses. Let, let me give you an example. Perhaps maybe the easiest way to explain this is to draw from childhood experiences, especially as many of us probably have our own stories of what, the th- what we dreamed about, what we hoped to be when we were growing up, right? So there was a time in early childhood where I had legitimate hopes of being a professional athlete, right? Don't laugh, but I did. I see some of the snickering out there. It's okay, though. Uh, But I did, man, I was like in my kitchen, dribbling the basketball, I was out in the driveway shooting hoops, I'd get the ball, or the baseball bat hit off the tee, and there were numerous times where I had like legitimate hopes of being the guy that could hit the game-winning shot or the ninth inning home run to win it for his team, like I had those hopes. Then I got older and I realized that I didn't really have the athletic ability nor the genetics to make those hopes a reality. And so it became more of a wishful thinking, and as a result, I didn't really do anything seriously to pursue the hope of becoming a professional athlete, correct? It was based on wishful thinking, though it was still a hope. Contrast that to the hope that I had to be in ministry, right? I start getting serious about my faith, and I can begin to see, no, that is actually a reality. That's something that can actually happen. And so it changed my whole approach to life. I started being more involved in church. I started going to seminary. I started working in churches, and it positioned me to make those hopes a reality. And so that's the difference, right? The difference is, is that when we have some hope, and it's based in something that we don't really believe is attainable, it becomes wishful thinking. But when we legitimately believe it, it changes our whole orientation. It gives us ambition, right? If you were to look at the definition for ambition, right, it means to have that strong desire, that passion and a determination to achieve certain, certain things and even to put in that hard work and diligence to pursue it. That's ambition. And I say that to you because my fear is that more often than not, for us in the church or for us as believers, especially in our context, we take the things of the gospel and the hope that we have in the gospel and we really have a shallow understanding where it really just kind of feels like wishful thinking. And we, still so we don't really do much with it Right, It's there in the distance. But I don't know that we truly believe it and cling to it to the extent that we should. But when we actually believe, when we actually believe in Jesus' return, when we believe in the resurrection of the dead, that all things will be made new, when we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, it should ignite within us a gospel-oriented ambition. And that's what Paul is about to unpack for us. He's gonna model it for us and demonstrate for us. And my hope for us this morning as we look at it today is that each of us can be encouraged and challenged individually to live a life with that sort of gospel-oriented ambition. And that then by extension, collectively as a church, we would be known as a church that has that sort of ambition. So let's take a look and see how he puts this on display for us. Let's continue along in Romans chapter 15. I'm gonna kinda read through this incrementally and make some different points. Uh, Starting in verse 14, he says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So again, go back to chapter one, right? I've heard of your faith. It's been shared all over the world. I know that there are good things happening. I know that you're knowledgeable. I know that you're able to instruct one another. It's almost as if he's saying, hey, I know I just went on for 15 chapters about the gospel, But I know that you knew these things already. I know that you're teaching these things already. I've heard about you, right? I know that you're competent to instruct one another, yet I've gone ahead and written quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, right? I'm obligated both to Greek and to non-Greek, just as he said in chapter one. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So part of what Paul is doing here, that language is not accidental. He's being very intentional there, right? When you see words like priestly and offering and sanctified, he's using this as a tangible expression of all the things that he's unpacked about the Judaic and Gentile relationship in the church. He's saying there was a time where there was just a high priest who could only bring certain offerings to provide sanctification for the people. But because of what we see in the gospel, that the movement amongst the Gentiles is not something new. It still has its roots in these priestly responsibilities, right? It has its roots there, but, but everything has been reshaped and redefined in the people of God so that Paul himself now serves as a priest, which is a reminder that you and I, when we receive the gospel of grace, we too become Priest, priesthood of the believer, right, that we have this responsibility to take the grace that we have received and share it with others. And when we do, similar what Paul does here, he, he takes it to the, to the Gentiles, and by bringing this work to the Gentiles, he is presenting the Gentiles as an offering to the Lord. Here's, here's what I'm bringing before you, Lord, and the Holy Spirit is what sanctifies them. Not the blood of an animal, not not the sacrifice of the great high priest, but the work of the Holy Spirit sanctifies and renews people. And so so Paul brings this correlation in and helps redefine this new identity of the people of God, but keeping it tethered to this historical roots that we have with the Judaic practices of temple worship. So then he continues, "'Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus and my service to God.'" I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So again, Paul's just simply saying, all I'm sharing with you are the things that God is doing through me in this ministry to the Gentiles. Right? What he's trying to say is that these signs, these wonders, these stories, these testimonies, these churches being planted, all these things, This is evidence of the power of God, the spirit of God at work. All he's doing is being used by God. And so he's using that to validate and substantiate the work amongst the Gentiles. And so having said all that, we now get an insight to kind of what Paul's plan is, right? And and how this is gonna begin to take place and how it begins to reveal his ambition. Verse 19, second part of verse 19. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Let me stop right there. I want you to get a sense of where that is. I actually brought a photo for us today. Um, and I know it's far enough out that you can't see all the details of the villages and the lines, but the main point is to see those two red dots and that, that sweeping arch there that kind of shows you the region that Paul has been working, all right? So that's from Jerusalem to Illyricum, okay? And so what Paul has just said, this is where I've been. This, this is what I've been doing. This is where I have been preaching from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And he says, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that every single person in that region has heard the gospel as much as it means he has established a gospel presence and trusted it to the church or the leaders who are gonna follow after him to continue that work so that that region can be covered with the proclamation of the gospel. All right, so that's where he has been. Now, with that being said, Paul uses this to give us an insight to his ambition. Verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. Church, I could take the rest of the year and preach on that one verse. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ where he was not known. This is the whole reason Paul is driven and motivated. This is the way in which he has oriented his life. And I would tell you, church, that is my hope and my dream for each and every single one of you and for our church as a whole, that our lives would be oriented around the ambition to preach Christ where he is not known. And that starts here in this moment, in this room today. So what I want to do for a moment is that if there is anyone here today who doesn't Know Jesus, I'm speaking to you. If your heart doesn't know the hope of this gospel, this moment is for you. It is more important than anything else we could ever do today. It's to make sure that every heart that has walked in here, whether you walked in here on your own volition or you came against your will or you don't even know why you're here, if there's a chance anyone in this room today doesn't fully know Jesus, let me remind you of what the gospel has done for you. That the God that we serve loves you. He is the God filled with mercy and filled with grace. And he sees you in all of your brokenness, all of your pain, all of your shortcomings, all of your previous mistakes, your present mistakes, and all of your future mistakes. He sees you in all of that and he loves you. And if you've ever questioned his love, look no further than Jesus because the God of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us to reveal our creator, to show you his compassion, to show you his truth, to show you his mercy, to show you how to live your life, how to make it through this world. And he confronts that brokenness, he confronts that sin, and the depths of his love that he carries for you is the willingness to lay his life down on the cross so that the penalty That brings us the healing we talked about earlier. For all of our sins was laid upon his shoulders so that when he offered his blood and poured out his blood, you and I can find grace and mercy and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ, amen? But hear me, church, hear me. The gospel is so much more than forgiveness for sins. Right, because what happened the course of human history and what we see in the scriptures is that the penalty for sin is death and the way that you and i have this undeniable realization that we are shackled and broken and and confined by our sin is the fact that every single one of us faces the inevitability of death no one can run from it it comes for us all in different ways, sometimes expected, sometimes tragically. But it runs us all down. And the hope of the gospel shows us an empty tomb. And what it shows us is so much more that you're forgiven for mistakes, but that you have a hope to face this inevitable reality of death and find victory through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. you know it that's our sole ambition if there's anyone here today who doesn't understand that or know that what god has said is hear the hope of jesus turn from your broken ways offer a life of repentance choose to make him the king and the lord of your life and he will restore you to a right relationship with him that's the gospel and so i want to encourage you if that's you do that today And do it courageously. Pray that prayer. Acknowledge your need for God. Make him the king of your life. And then come and tell me after the service. Come and tell a deacon after the service. Somebody else sitting on your row. Another minister. Tell someone. One of the things that sometimes has has always kind of bothered me is that somewhere along the way, we felt like we needed to make the decision to follow Jesus a secret. And we started saying, hey, with every eye closed and every head bowed, Nobody's looking. Do you want to follow him? And I want to push back on that because they didn't do that. That's not how Jesus invited people. He didn't say, hey, all right, everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes. Nobody knows. We can meet later. Like, if you want to follow Jesus, let the world know. Be proud of it. Be courageous of it. And let the church celebrate that decision. This is our chief ambition to preach Christ where he is not known. And so Paul reveals that and challenges us in that same regard and makes it an example for us. And so church, it starts here for anyone that doesn't know him, but it doesn't, it doesn't end here. Right? I could go on and on and on about every statistic about unreached people groups and countries within the 1040 window that should compel the church to go and send people overseas. We could talk about the 10,000 people within a two and a half mile radius of this church who say that they don't know or believe in the existence of God. There are so many different places that we can go distantly and nearby that allow us to take the hope of the gospel and preach it where Christ isn't known. May we be such a people with such an ambition. That's what Paul has demonstrated. Now look at how he explains it. All right, he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. All right. so when he says, I don't want to build on someone else's foundation, he's not saying, well, I don't want to confuse, like, my doctrine with their doctrine. You know, I, I like contemporary worship, and they like traditional worship, so I just want to avoid all that stuff. That's not what he's talking about. It's just reiterating the idea that he wants to be a place where the gospel has not been proclaimed. That is his ambition. That is his passion. And so he brings in this reference from Isaiah 52, which is kind of a precursor to the passage we read earlier in Isaiah 53, right? Which is a, a kind of a, a beautiful summarization of his calling to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to pursue this ministry, to pursue this mission that those who haven't seen are going to see, that those who didn't know are beginning to understand. And so he, he explains this ambition, and then look at what he says in verse 22. This is why I've been hindered from coming to you. So I love it, so go back to chapter one, right? I've tried many times to come visit you, but I've been prevented from doing so until then. You know why? Because of that whole region between Jerusalem and Rome. He's like, I can't, I can't run past these people. I gotta establish, I know you're doing good. I know you're filled with knowledge. I know you're able to instruct one another, so I've gotta wait, I've got to invest my time here. And that's what's taken him so long to get to them, is this passion to preach the gospel and preach Christ where he is not known. All right, so he explains uh, all of the ambition, and now we get into some very practical implications of how this is going to result in a future visit. And Paul begins to impact both his long-term and immediate plans. All right, so verse 23 says, But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. So since I, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while you're passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. So uh, here's essentially what was saying. Now I'm coming, right? I've tried for so long, but now I'm coming. Go back to the map for a second, right? And so you can see, Paul's like, I've done what I can in this region. And now look, where's Paul's eyes? Where, where's his attention? Spain. What's between where he's been working in Spain? Rome. And so Paul has said, here's my long-term plan. I'm going to Spain. Like, he, this, this guy is relentless in his pursuit to take the gospel where it isn't known. And now that he has this long-term plan to go to Spain, he says, now I can come visit you there in Rome. And so I'm going to pass through. I'm not coming to, like, establish a church. I'm coming so that we can mutually encourage one another in the faith, so that we can instruct one another, encourage one another. I can preach the gospel to those that are Rome. And then after I've been there for a while, you can assist me in getting this, this gospel to Spain. And so that that reference to assistance could be a lot of different things, right? I mean, it could be uh, give me a place to stay, send people with me, provide financial support, provide encouragement, provide protection. Like there's so many different things, but Paul has just said, here's my long-term goal. I'm trying to get to Spain and I'm gonna visit you along the way. But before I do that, I have something more immediate that I need to do. Let's pick it back up. Verse 25. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way, And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Let's stop there. So what Paul says is, here's my long-term plan. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to stop with you along the way. But before I do, I've got to go back to Jerusalem. Because I have this contribution. See, these churches, these congregations in Macedonia and Achaia, and really probably several others, the scholars believe, but at least these two were referenced, have been giving money so that Paul can take it back and help care for the Lord's poor that are there in Jerusalem. And so he's going back there and he says, they were pleased to do this. In fact, it was owed, they they owed it to him. And that doesn't mean necessarily that early churches had to pay some sort of a temple tax back to Jerusalem, but that this was inherent within them. That part of the reason they owed it to them is because he said, as Gentiles, we are beneficiaries of the spiritual blessings of the Jews, right? That the whole reason we have this gospel, this is a lineage of of the Judaic faith that we now are beneficiaries of. And so our response to these spiritual blessings is to share these material blessings back to the church in Jerusalem. And this was, this was uh, woven into the fabric of Paul's church planning efforts, right, for them to offer up these contributions that he is now taking back to Jerusalem. And I want to point that out to you. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you can see this even in his letter to the church to Galatia. Right, so in in the letter to the Galatians, in chapter two, Paul explains a lot about his background, a lot about his history and where he got his training and his learning and all these other different things. And there's this moment where he starts talking about this conversation that that James, uh, Peter, and John had with Paul and Barnabas, which is just like, man, love to be in the room where it happened, right? Like, what a cool conversation to be a part of. And so here's how he says it. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. In chapter two, verse 9, James, Cephas, and John, Cephas being Peter, those esteemed as pillars, right? These are like the main guys of the apostles, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me, right? They, they supported us. They, they saw what God was doing, and they endorsed it. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised, right? And so here's the five of them, They see that Paul and Barnabas have the spirit of God and the favor of God working amongst the Gentiles. So they say, you keep going, and the three of us, James, Peter, and John, we're gonna keep working amongst the Jews, right? And so they have this like planned uh, focus and kind of delineation in their path. And then here's what it says in verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. And so what you see is that Paul, when he goes and he begins to, to share in this church-building, Gentile-oriented uh, effort. He is encouraging the churches there to, to share in the material blessings to give to the poor back to Jerusalem and, and ultimately to one another. This is one of the chief characteristics of the early church. You go to Acts chapter two, and yes, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but what else do they do? They sell each other's possessions and give to each other according to their need. Right? And so here's where we are. Now we're talking about money. And it's really funny when you start going through Romans because you're like getting towards the later part of the book and it's almost as if Paul sat down and thought, you know, what are the most controversial subjects I could cover? Let's go politics, All right, let's go to the food sacrifice, oh, and money, let's get that one covered too. So if you've been with us for the last several weeks, like we've hit some controversial ones and we, we need to talk about money for a little bit. And, and what I want to do is I want to take the principles and in the example that Paul is demonstrating here into a present-day context and reality and allow it to challenge us in a way that helps us take a step closer to that sort of gospel-oriented ambition, okay? Um, Now, I'll be very honest. I don't typically like talking about money, okay? If you've been a part of this church, you know that that's not something I talk about with great regularity, maybe even to a fault. Um, We've talked about it from time to time, but not with great consistency. And there are a couple of reasons why I'm hesitant to ever bring this subject up. One of them is because I've seen the church uh, mishandle this subject time and time again throughout history, right? Whether it was like the indulgences that the Roman Catholic Church sold many, many years ago as a way to get forgiveness for sins, or it's the current day problem of the prosperity gospel, right? And this idea that if you just give to God, He's gonna give so much more right back to you. And how many times we have seen a distorted gospel for the sake of money or the mishandling of money, right? Where churches and pastors in particular have have exploited the generosity of people to their own benefit and to their own selfish gain. And so there's a part of me that that really wants to react against that. And I never want our, our church to have a reputation of being money driven or myself as a pastor. And so as a result, I tend to be pretty slow to talk about this. And it's not just that, the other reason I'm pretty hesitant is because when I search through the scriptures, what seems to be very clear to me is that the gospel is not dependent upon silver and gold, right? I mean, Jesus sends out his disciples two by two and he says, take nothing with you, right? He, he, he uh, encounters the rich young ruler and he says, sell everything you own. Peter heals somebody and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have in the name of Jesus, take a mat and walk. The gospel is not dependent upon silver and gold. And so I never want to speak about money and potentially confuse you into thinking that we must have a certain amount in order for the gospel to flourish. I don't see that in scripture. However, it is also a disservice to you to assume and to never talk about it and assume that the gospel has no impact on our finances and our giving because it consistently does. It is a regular point of conversation, so we need to talk about it today, all right? And so when, when we broach this subject, here are a couple of things that I want to make sure we don't lose sight of. I wanna make sure that whenever we talk about money, whenever we talk about giving, we have the right mindset and we have the right posture, okay? And so when I, when I talk about that, the first thing I want you to know is that when we talk about giving, the mindset that we need to have is that this is an act of worship. Regardless of how you give, where you give, how much you give, when you give, to who you give, it is an act of worship, right? Because here's the problem with the human heart, right? As outlined in Romans chapter one, the problem with the human heart is that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. That's what he says in Romans one. And so how do you evaluate, how do you self-assess the created things that you worship, There's a lot of ways to do it. One of them is to look at where you spend your money. Right, because what you spend money on reveals objects of your affection. Now, hear me, I totally understand that a lot of what we spend money on are are necessities, like food and shelter and things that we don't desire but we have to have. But even in those arenas of necessities, there are times where our spending moves out of necessity and into luxury. And it it spills over into other subjects, not just necessities, but wants, like uh, wardrobes or clothing or cars or vehicles or hobbies or interests or all these other things. And so you look at what you spend money on, it reveals objects of your affection. It reveals created things that we cling to. So when we give, what that does is it helps us loosen our grip on created things. And it reorients our heart towards the creator and it helps us worship and what it does is it should foster a spirit of gratitude and dependence right because gratitude allows us to come before the father and say whatever i have received however i have earned it is not by my doing right that god is the one that has created you he gives you life He gives you good health, whatever talents, whatever intellect you have used to earn that income is a gift given to you by God. And so by giving back to him is a way to say, thank you. And it's not just to demonstrate gratitude. It's also a way to demonstrate dependence, right? You look back when the people were wandering through the wilderness and God would provide manna and quail on a regular basis, but he would tell them every day, only gather enough for one day. Don't try to accumulate more for yourself. And what he was teaching them was that your sustainability is not based upon what you can accumulate. Right, the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Right, Sermon on the Mount. What does he say in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, don't worry about tomorrow, what you're gonna eat, what you're gonna drink, what you're gonna wear. All those things will be given to you. Seek you first, the kingdom of God, today. So part of the other thing that happens when we give is it reminds us that the sustainability that we need in our life is not based upon what we can commu- accumulate, but what God will provide. And so when we give, we say, Lord, I trust you to sustain me. It's an act of worship. We also need to have the right posture when we talk about this. Because a lot of times I think the mistakes that churches can make is when we talk about giving, we make it very formulaic. And we're like, here's your 10%. Here's the automatic withdrawal. And we essentially put God on the same level as like our utility bills right? And, and it robs us of the right posture. Now, I'm not to say that you shouldn't do some of those things. There's a convenience factor. There's a clarity factor, but it should never take away from your posture. The posture that we promote here in this church is that our posture towards giving should be sacrificial, generous, and cheerful, right? So sacrificial. Um, we're never just giving God the spare change that we find. In the car. We're, we're never giving him just our leftovers, right? It's sacrificial. Again, when you go to the scriptures in the, the New, Ch- New Testament church, they were selling their property. Right? You go back to the Old Testament, they're giving their first fruits, not at the end, right? The best part of the harvest. They're giving their firstborn, not the runt, right? They're giving something precious to them. When we give, it should be sacrificial. It should hurt a little bit because God deserves our firsts, not our leftovers, right? So it should be sacrificial. It should be generous. Generosity to me is a lifestyle. What I mean by generosity is that we don't just give in seasons of abundance. We give also in seasons of scarcity because we're generous, right? So even when we don't have much, we want to give because our hearts are predisposed towards a spirit of generosity, it's just not when it's convenient or not just when we have plenty to go around, but in all seasons with a regular and consistent approach, we are generous. We wanna be cheerful. We wanna be joyful in our giving. How do you maintain that spirit of joy? Well, it's by understanding. There is a vision, there's a purpose, there's a need that's being placed. Understand the vision to which you're giving to, understand the relationships, connect it to it and allow it to bring in joy. So when we talk about these things, our mindset needs to be a mindset of worship and it needs to be a posture that is sacrificial, cheerful, and generous, okay? So all that being said, how do we do that? How do we pursue that practically? Okay, I'm gonna try to get through this as quickly but as also as appropriately as I can. Um, here's, here's how we do this. What Paul has done in Romans 15 is he has essentially given them a vision. He says, hey, here's where the gospel's going. It's going to Spain, I need your help. I'm gonna need your assistance to make it happen. And then he also cares for the needs of his people. We also gotta be mindful of the needs of our people. And the way that we do that in our modern context, uh, for lack of a better term, is we create a budget. And I almost hate the fact that we call it a budget because a budget feels like we're in an accounting office, right? But the reality is, is that the budgets that are created are built upon prayerful consideration by committees and leadership that says, this is where we feel like God is leading us long term. These are the steps that we need to take this is how we're going to try to care for one another in the process right and we put together these budgets for for our church uh our budget goes from october to september that's our fiscal year so we're in the last two months basically approaching the last two months of our fiscal year uh, we put things together like the world mission offering some of you are sitting there going what's the world mission offering uh it's it's another special offering that we've created say here's how we pursue the missional endeavors of the church over and above the budget, right? So we put these things together to demonstrate God's vision and his plan for our community of faith, okay? And so um, just to challenge us this morning, I wanna let you know where things stand and how we're doing at this point, okay? Um, Our overall budget for the year is about 1.3 million. And so if you were to look to that uh, year to date, you will see there on the screen uh, that we should be tracking at about 1.1 million uh, at this point in the year. Our actual income is around 904000 which means there's a difference of around $200,000. It's about 78% of the budget, okay? Um, now, when we go through these statistics, the first, things that I want, the first thing I want to say is I'm deeply grateful for the generosity of this church. Um, nothing that I share today do I want to take away from that, but I do want to speak honestly about where we are. There is a shortfall, but whenever you talk about this shortfall of income to budget, you also have to consider income versus expenses, okay? So the next slide here talks a little bit about income to expenses. So the good thing is, is just because we budgeted 1.1 million doesn't mean we went out and spent 1.1 million. We tend to be pretty mindful of those things and try to uh, hold back our expenses when we can. And so you can see there's been a lot of restraint. We've only spent around $995,000 up to this point in time, but there's still a difference of around $90,000. That's a challenge, right? Because just like in your home, if you spend more than you take in, you have to pay that off somehow, right? And so if anyone out there, if you're new to this church and you think UBC is just sitting on a pile of cash and we have like this treasure trove of resources and this huge savings account that we can just cover those shortfalls, we don't. Okay, here's how we've handled it. Uh, When we went through COVID as a church, we participated in the payroll protection plan. Uh, what allowed allowed us for two years or so to build up some budget reserves. And at one point, those reserves were a little more than $200,000. We started this fiscal year in October with about $124,000 of budget reserves. Because of that $90,000 shortfall, we're down to about 33. And if you're doing the math, we're on pace to completely deplete it by the end of the year, if not sooner. Okay, and so when we deplete that, it's not like we have a whole lot of other places to turn to to cover these shortfalls. And so what do we do? Like, what's our answer to that? Well, there's two, two things that I would put in front of you this morning. One is, is we've gotta be mindful of our spending. And I wanna give you the assurance we do that and we'll continue to do it. We're currently shaping the budget for the next year. Finance Committee has done a phenomenal job of praying through these things, lifting these things up. The staff is doing a great job. And right now we're talking about what can we cut and, and how do we do it? Those are not fun conversations. Um, But we have them, and they have been had with tremendous support, encouragement, civility, and and just a kindness and a goodness across the board. And so I'm so grateful for the people and the leadership that are having those conversations. But we are having those conversations. We wanna be good stewards, and we will be. And so you'll see that reflected in the budget proposals coming up. But the other thing we have to talk honestly about as a church is the culture of giving. And that's where I think this can correlate to part of what we're seeing in Romans 15. Um, here, here's the reality, these reports are not unique for UBC. If I'm not mistaken, out of the last 28 years, the church has met budget twice, okay? And so it's, it's not just a budgetary and spending thing, it is something that we have to do some honest reflection about the culture of giving. And a lot of times when we have this conversation, we start thinking, well, I just need to give more, I need to give more, I need to give more, Listen, that's between you and the Lord. What I'm here to talk to you about today is how I see it is really more about how do we function collectively as a community faith to pursue the things that God has put in front of us. So here's how I look at it. I think about it in terms of active households. Now, this is not an exact science, but we estimate around 180 active households. A household could be a family, could be an individual, could be a couple, right? It's a household. And and that ebbs and flows, as you can imagine, but it's not like the distant relative that somehow got placed on our rolls and is never here. We're talking about the 180 households that are regularly in attendance, involved, participating in the life and ministry of our church. Okay, so what we would love to see is that on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, we're seeing full engagement and participation from all those who are involved to pursue the vision of this church. What those numbers result in being is about 97 which is around 53%, okay? And, and so just to, to clarify that for you, what that means is that for every 10 households that you may cross through the course of a month, about half of them are contributing about half of the mark. And, and that to me is something that we've got to reevaluate. Right, and, and so the reason I'm sharing that kind of detail with you is because just in, in the sense that you were sitting there going, you know, I haven't given in a long time, but that's because I feel like the church is doing all right, or most everyone else is giving, and I'm kind of in the minority, or things along those lines, or I'll just get to it later. I want to challenge that mindset because it's diminishing the mindset of worship, the posture, and it's challenging what we can do collectively as a people of God to pursue the vision, right? And so let let me talk to you about the potential that exists when we buy in and demonstrate that sort of ambition, right? If we were to have everyone participate, even if you just gave a little bit, but that overall average gift continued at about the same amount that it is right now, we would be projecting a $300,000 surplus as opposed to a $300,000 shortfall. So that's that's the impact that we're talking about here. And so my simple request is for all of us to go home and pray about it, right? Make it a a responsive worship, evaluate your posture, and be challenged to, to respond so that we can pursue the vision that God has put in front of this church because it matters. I don't want you to hear it in the lens of, oh, we gotta pay the electric bill and we gotta pay salaries and all these other things. Listen, this is the way that God has gifted this church to pursue ministry in our context In our days, week after week, we have people gathering on this campus, coming in with overwhelming feelings of depression or grief or addiction. And they are finding freedom from those things because of the gospel. Children are coming here week after week and they are being given the opportunity to hear the foundation of gospel truth. We are sending teams all over the world and we are raising up future missionaries. Right, we're taking the gospel to Portland, to New York, to Houston, to Guatemala, Lesotho, Cambodia. We're taking the places where Christ is not known and we're proclaiming this truth. We were coming in here and beneficiaries of a building that many of us weren't around when it was built. Right? And we have this opportunity to be good stewards, to take what was handed to us from previous generations, hand it to future generations, because it matters. It is bringing an opportunity for God to demonstrate the love and kindness and grace to those that need to hear it. I came to faith as a disciple now. It changed my life. And it doesn't happen without the overwhelming response and generosity of the Lord's people changes lives and it demonstrates this posture of ambition and so paul's sitting there going listen i want to go to spain i need your assistance i've got this offering to jerusalem we got to care for the lord's people this is the work of the church and it helps demonstrate our ambition so take that for what it's worth church pray about it and respond accordingly let me close with this because i know i'm running long Look at how Paul brings it to a conclusion. He continues on, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and the the contribution I take to Jerusalem be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you, be with you all, amen. Our gifts, our money, our contributions mean nothing if they're not covered in prayer. Our gifts, our offerings mean nothing if they are not supporting a gospel-centered ambition. I want you to recognize that Paul's journey back to Jerusalem is a life-threatening journey journey you go back and read the pages of acts they ran him out of town they tried to kill him he is going back known to be a traitor and one that is an enemy of the jews and he is going to be pursued and persecuted and he is putting his life on the line and so what he needs more than anything is their prayers but make no mistake church he moves forward with that sort of determination, with that sort of perseverance because he has a gospel-centered ambition. And he knows that the God of hope and the God of peace will see him through. May we be such a people. May you and I be such a church that we would be so fiercely committed that in every aspect of our lives, no matter what it may cost us, We are committed to taking the gospel of christ where it is not known let's pray father in heaven we love you and we thank you for who you are and all that you do for us and we pray god that you would allow us to respond um, with a heart of worship god that you truly would be all that we need you would be everything that we look for and god that whether it's in our giving whether it's in Um, our service whether it's in our commitment to go across the world wherever you may lead god help us to be known as people that have that god-centered ambition god i return to those who are here today who have not yet known jesus god that they would respond wholeheartedly to the hope of the gospel um, and they would give their lives to it and god the way in which we handle our material blessings would be a way that brings honor to you Um, and would bring glory to you as we seek to live out that passion, that ambition, and that vision that you've placed upon this church. God, we love you, and we ask all these things to be used to your glory. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen and amen.